The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. I am going to jump right in with no falderal whatsoever because our opening guest has sent me so many fascinating questions, and I know you'll want to hear the answers. This is a special show for us. We have started recently doing four times a year what we call our seasonal sanctuary stroll when we highlight the wonderful work of an animal sanctuary. And for spring 2016, we have chosen the Poplar Spring Animal Sanctuary in Poolsville, Maryland. This is a nice, easy drive from Washington, D.C. If you are at all in that area, oh my gosh, you've got to visit. I have not been to a single animal sanctuary that didn't feel like a little piece of heaven on earth. But this one, I just have to tell you, in addition to the amazing home that is being provided to 200 formerly farmed animals and all the great outreach and the programs that they do there, this is such a beautiful, idyllic spot. Just the the trees and the forest and the pond and the nature. I mean, it's really, really a place that you will want to visit and Oh my gosh, you also get to hang out with 200 amazing animals. So my guest is Terry Cummings, co-founder and co-director of Poplar Spring Animal Sanctuary. And you can find out all about them at animalsanctuary.org. That's easy. It's a 400-acre refuge for formerly abused and abandoned farm animals founded in 1996. Welcome, Terry Cummings. Thank you so much, Victoria, for having me and for your nice compliments about our sanctuary. Oh, it's an amazing sanctuary. I'm just quite, quite the fan. So take us back a bit. Were you vegan first or did you start an animal sanctuary first? We were vegan first, but we weren't vegan when we moved to the farm where we started the sanctuary. So it was interesting. Uh, We were people who you know, supposedly loved animals, but we're still eating them. Um, I got my degree in animal science at University of Maryland, and I was working as a vet tech at the National Zoo, and I, you know, loved animals, but I didn't want to think about eating them. And then we moved to this 400-acre farm in Poolsville, and we were just renting the farmhouse, and there was a man renting the rest of the farm for his beef cattle. 
And we thought, oh, it's going to be wonderful to live at a place that has cows and we can see them and get to know them. And we did. Uh, We fed them apples. We named them. There were about 200 cows wandering around the farm. And then one day we heard a lot of noise coming from the barn and we looked out and there was a man, uh, men, uh, beating them, getting all the cows into a big truck. And I ran out to see what was happening. And I saw, uh, you know, babies being taken away from their mothers and the cows crying. And they said, oh, they're going to the slaughterhouse. And that was what changed our lives. I mean, that one event, more than anything else, getting to know the cows, getting to see how they have families, how they interact with each other, how they love each other, and then seeing them being trucked away to slaughter, that was it for me and Dave, my husband. We had to stop eating animals, and then uh, eventually, in a couple years, we became vegan. So first we went vegetarian, but it was about hmm, 10 years after that that we actually started the sanctuary. What a wonderful story. So it's got to be hard. We were talking before the show about winter, and you had a big blizzard, and the employees (laughs) couldn't come in. It was just you and your husband and 200 animals. What are the challenges? I think so many of us think, oh, someday, when I retire, (laughs) when I'm too old to do anything else, I'll go have a farmed animal sanctuary. Maybe think again. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's very, very challenging. Um, we were lucky in that we had, we started renting this farm. Um, our, the owner of the farm, uh, told the guy who had his beef cows there that he had to leave so that we could start renting the entire property for the sanctuary. So we were very lucky to have that. So the infrastructure was in place. We already had outbuildings. We didn't have to spend a lot of money building them. We were getting a very low rent at the time. And then uh, after a couple of years, the owner actually uh, basically donated the whole property to us. So that was incredible. So we had that, which made it easier. But the hard part is that taking care of a lot of farm animals is a lot of physical labor. It's a lot of work. And you're doing it 24-7. When you live on the property, you don't get time off. You don't get downtime because you're always taking care of animals, which we love. It's very, very rewarding. That's the positive part of it. But it's um, I think most people probably underestimate the amount of physical labor involved in just basically doing care, feeding, cleaning, watering, medicating, and then maintaining a large piece of property too. So it's expensive and and a lot of hard work. And yet you love it every day. <laughs> And yet, I feel so incredibly lucky to be able to do this. It is the best job in the world, and I'm just so happy every day I can go out and look at all these wonderful animals that have been saved from the worst circumstances. You know, the the laws don't protect farm animals. They're exempt from the anti-cruelty laws in every state, so the situations that they've come from have to be some of the absolute worst in order for law enforcement to be able to legally go in and confiscate these animals from situations. And usually it has to be something like they've starved the animals and some of them have already died before they'll actually go in and take them away, the remaining survivors. So the animals that get to come to us have come from horrific situations and they're, you know, it's just so rare and they're just so lucky and I can just walk around the farm and say, oh, my gosh, I'm just so happy I was able to help these animals. Mm. And then to be able to share that with other people, too, by opening our grounds to tours and visits for the community and for anybody who wants to come and meet them is so rewarding, too. Oh, it is. And there's just there's no better place to go. I mean, my daughter just had a birthday and her husband said, what do you want? And, you know, I think husbands always expect their wives will say something like, well, I saw this necklace. And she said, I want you to rent a car because, you know, we're in New York City. We don't have a car and drive me to an animal sanctuary. (laughs) Now, her husband grew up in rural Vermont. He has seen enough farmed animals for him, his liking. That's fine. You know, been there, done that. But that was the birthday gift. So if there's a person like that in your life, 
take them to Poplar Spring because it is glorious. Now, Terry, there is within our movement a small but very vocal contingent who just say uh, farmed animal sanctuaries are, are, are just you know, a waste of time. You know, we have all these people eating meat and all these millions of animals being killed. So the idea of saving a few of them, some people don't see the value in that. Mm-hmm. Tell us what the value is for anybody who might be questioning. Absolutely. Well, of course we can only save a very few. I mean, if 9 billion animals are being killed every year from meat, the numbers that we can save in sanctuaries is just a drop in the bucket. But we can save so many more by bringing people out to meet the animals, letting them see that they all have personalities, that they all love each other, that they all um, are individuals just like their dogs and cats. I think most people do not know that. It's easier to eat animals like it was for me and Dave when we didn't know them. Once we got to know them, it changed our lives and it changed our eating habits. And in that way, we've saved so many more. And that's our hope is that by letting people get to know the animals, get to meet them, hear some of their stories, and actually get to see them as individuals, that we're going to save thousands and thousands more in, in getting people to become vegetarian and vegan. Absolutely. It's very hard after you've actually met somebody that you used to think of with something, you might not stop eating them consistently forever from the one visit, but you can never go back. And, oh, my gosh, two visits. I don't know who could keep eating meat after that. (laughs) So tell us a good story. Tell us an animal rescue story. Yeah, I'd like to talk about one that was just a little eye-opener for me. Um, a lot of people think that, I mean, they've heard these horrific stories about factory farms and how terrible it is, and they are terrible. But what they don't know is that the animals on sanctuaries, the vast majority of animals on sanctuaries are not from factory farms. You can't rescue them from these factory farms. It's all insular. Everything is contained. Their slaughterhouses are on site a lot of times. But where our animals come from, are they actually from family farms and from organic farms and these smaller farms, which people think are so much better, and really they're not. It's just on a smaller scale. And on one of our recent rescues was a little pig named Willoughby, and he came from an organic farm. And I myself did not really understand what was going on at organic farms. I knew that they couldn't give uh, antibiotics. And they were trying, you know, to keep the animals supposedly antibiotic-free. And that was supposedly better for people and supposedly better for the animals. But little Willoughby was one of many piglets on this farm. And it was a local farm not far from Poplar Spring. A little girl was um, riding her horse through the woods that, that intersected with this farm. And she saw a pile of dead piglets. And she stopped and looked, and then she saw one of the pigs on the top of the pile move its ears. Oh. And she knew he was still alive. So she got off her horse. She went down to the house where she knew there was the office, and she told them this pig still alive. And they said, okay, okay. So she came back the next day, and he was still there. <gasps> he was still breathing. And so she went down and they said, we're just waiting for him to die. And they told her that because this was an organic farm, they couldn't treat him. All the pigs that were dead on this pile were because they had pneumonia. And they just, they didn't treat them. They didn't help them in any way. And it wasn't worth their while because if they gave them an antibiotic, the meat would be no longer organic and it would be sold for less. Not that they couldn't sell the pig for meat then, just that it would be sold for less. And to them... It was easier just to let them die a slow, painful death. And they, the little girl asked if she could take this piglet and try to save him, and they said, whatever, they didn't care. They let her take him. She brought him to us. He was so sick. He almost didn't make it. But we nursed him back to health, and now he's thriving. He's happy. He's healthy. But it took a lot of drugs and TLC and good nursing care to get him 
uh, healthy again. But, I mean, it just it shocked me that that's what you want to gain from. So people who are thinking that they're buying a more humane meat, it's really not true. It is so not true. I, I just... It's such a fine line, Terry, that on, on the one hand, there was just an article today that Walmart is now going to carry only cage-free eggs. I mm. mean, I, I guess that's good. I would rather they had egg-free stores than cage-free eggs. But yeah. those of us who care about the animals just have to know that that may be a, a step in the right direction, but it's not much of a step. What do you it think? Really What's your isn't. opinion? I, I don't I don't I don't think it's much better at all because I've seen these cage free facilities and they still cram them so close together that they still feel it's necessary to de beak them, which is cutting off the ends of their beak, the chickens, and um they still can hardly move. Yes, there's no wire cage there. But they don't have much room at all. I mean, the requirements for cage-free, and this is not, I think a lot of people think cage-free is free range. They don't get to go outside. It just means that they're not in wire cages. So it's such a tiny, tiny difference that I hate to make people feel better about eating eggs. We personally don't ever advocate for things like that. We just say, hey, it's easier just to stop eating eggs. You know, you really don't need them. There's so many great egg substitutes now and meat substitutes out there. It's just, you know, better for the animals, better for you. And it's a clean break. You know, I think sometimes to just say, you know, done. And now we're going to go on and and have this other life. So, Terry, in just our, our last couple of minutes, tell me what your vision is for the future. How, how's the world going to look 50 years from now? Well, I'm so excited about all the new people that are becoming vegan, all the new vegan options out there. Every day I read something new in the news about how people are starting to understand that it's better for our health, that it's better for our environment, and there's great, wonderful uh, films coming out about it. And uh, I just feel like when we first started 20 years ago, people didn't even know what the word vegan meant. And now we have uh, events and people are excited about trying vegan food. They, they're already familiar with it. There's more vegan restaurants. I really feel like the wave of the future is going to be a much more vegan world. And I know in my lifetime, it's going to be so much more mainstream. And I'm really excited about that. Oh, and thank you for being part of it. And thank you for the wonderful care. You're the Florence Nightingale of farmed (laughs) animals. So everybody, check out this wonderful, wonderful place, animalsanctuary.org. And uh, go to their Facebook page and, and Twitter at Poplar Spring. We'll put all of the links on the Main Street Vegan show notes. If you go to MainStreetVegan.net, click on podcast, you'll get a little drop down. And it will have all the information about Poplar Spring Sanctuary, Poolsville, Maryland. And also about our next guest, August McLaughlin, health and sexuality expert. Are vegans sexier? Well, we're going to find out. Stay with us. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. 
The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths, then your dream life starts today. No more waiting, no more wandering. If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you're ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. Join host Ray Zander every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real. Listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. Always a pleasure to have you. I want to make a special welcome to people who didn't know about us before this past weekend. The people who attended the Health Fest in Marshall, Texas. Our previous guest talked about all the wonderful films that are available. And one of them that actually is available online right now. You can't see it at a theater yet because it has to do the festival circuit. But that is the Marshall Plan about Marshall, Texas, where the mayor and his wife went vegan. And now the whole town is getting healthy. It's, it's quite a wonderful experience. I just came back from there. want to say hey to all my friends in Texas. I wore my cowboy boots. Hey, Kat Mendenhall, wore my vegan cowboy boots. And let's see. I also want to send everybody to the blog over at Main Street Vegan. This week, I wrote it myself, and it's called Movement as Spiritual Practice. So do take a look at that. And while we're thinking about the body and movement and feeling good in our own skin, what a perfect time to introduce my next guest. She is August McLaughlin, an award-winning, nationally recognized health and sexuality writer and host and creator of Girl Boner, a really popular podcast and blog. I was actually a guest on her blog, but the Catholic school runs deep in me. And when I say Girl Boner, I know I blush. But you don't know that because we're on a podcast and you're not seeing me blush. So all is well. And thank you, Sister Mary Catherine, for doing that to me. August's work appears in Dame Magazine, The Huffington Post, The Good Men Project, and more. Kirkus Reviews called her first novel, In Her Shadow, an engaging story with an inventing structure and an intriguing focus on body image issues. Not surprising, because that's one of her areas of speciality. Her latest book is Embraceable, Empowering Facts and True Stories About Women's Sexuality. August is a committed vegan known for melding personal passion, artistry, and activism and using her skills as a public speaker and journalist to inspire other women to embrace their bodies and themselves, making for fuller, more authentic lives. Welcome, August McLaughlin. Thank you, Victoria. I'm such a fan of your work and have been for years. So thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I was writing some of the posts about your being on the show, and I was saying, we have talked about interior design and raw food and juicing and uh, heart disease and animal rights and I didn't think we'd ever talked about sexuality before. And then I realized we actually did talk a little bit about that with um, 
Dr. Brian Clement, who, who had written a book about uh, being healthier and sexier. But you know what? When it comes from the female point of view, it is a whole different topic of conversation. So tell us how you got into this field of endeavor. You know, it really is a different conversation. It's more complex, I would say. And for me, you mentioned my body image trials and and specialties. When I was growing up, I had really poor body image and like many women do. And in order to heal from a severe eating disorder that I developed while I was actually working as a model, I was based in Paris and was diagnosed with anorexia. And it was a very severe illness. And I was very fortunate to not only survive it, but fully recover. And one of the biggest steps in that healing process that helped me the most was recognizing that I had never had those conversations. Just as you said, you grew up you know, feeling like it was this taboo, hush-hush, kind of naughty thing. And speaking about it out loud for the first time was incredibly empowering. And then I got a little frustrated because I realized that not only did I lack that sort of empowerment, but how broad spread and what kind of an epidemic it has become. So it was wonderful to be able to turn that into something positive. And so now all of my outreach is related to, to all of that. Well, there's certainly a need. When you said that you were a model and you were diagnosed with anorexia, I could just almost hear people thinking, well, aren't all models anorexic? So educate us a little bit. Models tend to be very thin, but anorexia is a disease. What's the difference? Very, very good point. Um, You know, anorexia is really complicated, and the way that it's diagnosed is, in my opinion, a bit um, off. It hasn't changed and evolved as as we've learned more about the disease, because right now the diagnosis is based on being a certain percentage of body weight below your quote, ideal BMI and body weight. But as we know now in the health field, BMI is really not a, a good judge of health or wellness or any of that. So there are many people who model who have eating disorders. And I think that the industry draws people who have insecurities about their bodies. It's, it's kind of a weird sort of masochistic thing. I know that I felt like if I could uh, model, then I would be somehow valuable and that I would have this reason to always stay thin. And I had been really insecure about that. So I certainly met a lot of people who were in that space. And it also is full of young women. When you're in that high fashion world, there's 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, and a lot of women at that time struggle with body image issues. So then when you're in the industry where agents are actually saying things to you, like, you know, are you getting a little fat? Like I would hear that pretty often. That can be an extra layer of pressure that does drive some people into eating disorders, but you can be a very, very slender person who by the charts (laughs) say that you are underweight, but you're very healthy. So it really has to do, it's a, it's a psychiatric illness. It's a mental illness that has very physical repercussions. So for example, I was experiencing extreme depression and anxiety and obsession over food and counting calories and over exercise. It's, it's not as though my, my weight just fell down naturally. And that's probably the biggest difference. So were you able to continue modeling after your recovery or did you need to just leave that entire arena? I actually did go back into it for a while. I had this sense of wanting to sort of, on one hand, make up for, not that I could, but I thought that I could make up for some of the, quote, sick pictures that had been out there of me because they're very emaciated pictures of me in magazines. And I felt like I needed to somehow compensate. And then on the other side of that, I really enjoyed modeling when I started. I am a performer at heart, and I really enjoyed working with the cameras and all of that. So I kind of felt robbed of it a bit, too. And I thought, if I get back into it, but kind of by my own standards, I could then go into acting, which I was more interested in. And so I took a contract in Miami after I was fully recovered or mostly recovered and started doing more like lifestyle modeling. And that led into acting, which led into writing. It's all wonderful and creative. Now, I remember when my daughter was in theater school and I had asked something like, how come 
you and your friends never seem to go out to eat. And she said, oh, they don't eat. And I said, well, what are they doing? Like Atkins? And she said, no, they do the dancer diet, diet Coke and cigarettes. Aww. And I thought that I'm glad you're not going out with them. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, it is. But I think it's wonderful when a young woman can either come through that or not succumb to it in the first place. But the the influences are very strong. I mean, I was in a way anorexic before people were talking about anorexia because I had always struggled with overweight and even obesity. And when I finally lost weight of the first time, I was afraid to go on any kind of maintenance plan. So I just kept getting thinner and thinner. And everybody else, of course, thought I was way too thin. You know, it was 94 pounds the day that I decided I was cured and could go back to binging. So all these disorders are really, really complex. And if there's somebody in your life listener who's dealing with any of this stuff, um, our thoughts go out to you. It's complicated, but there can be a very happy ending. And you're hearing from two women today who both came out on the other side. So, August, explain to us in your point of view how to differentiate between a healthy lifestyle and a restrictive lifestyle. I've heard so many people who have come through eating difficulties, whether on the undereating side or the overeating side, and they say, no, I don't want to hear about the animals or anything because that would cause me to do restrictive eating. Ah, uh, that is such an excellent point. And I actually was vegetarian in my teens as a means of restriction. I specifically wanted I thought if I ate a vegetarian diet, it would be easier for me to lose weight. So it has to do with the mindset. And in my opinion, a restrictive diet is one that's full of rigid rules that aren't based on your ethics. Rules and guidelines are fine if they are in a healthy place that empower you and that help you feel energized and you're able to take care of yourself. So for me now... It took, I had to kind of get away from any kind of dietary guidelines of any sort and then gradually get myself back to where I felt in a place where I felt really, really connected to my diet in a, in a values kind of way. So if you're leading a lifestyle that gives you a sense of gratification, that's a really powerful sign. And I actually taught nutrition therapy at a recovery center for about eight years. And I noticed that many of the patients who had eating disorders and who were either vegetarian or vegan, they had heard from other people, dietitians and even professionals in the eating disorder community saying, you shouldn't do that because it's restrictive. And I just don't think it's up to somebody else to decide or tell you if it's restrictive, unless there's something really obvious, like you're completely missing out a macronutrient, like you're not eating any fat or you're not eating any carbohydrates. If you're eating for your, for your values and you're able to feel empowered and healthy, there's nothing restrictive about that. I agree with you so completely. And I love what you said, that it was a mindset that you believed that if you were vegetarian, it would help you stay thin. Now, I had been given a, a different message. The message that I got was if you were vegetarian, you will probably gain all your weight back and be bigger than you ever were. And guess what? That's what happened. Yeah. And, and what you believe seems to come in into being. So we need to be having healthy beliefs uh, as the foundation of, of acting in, in healthy ways. So, okay, I'm going to do something healthy. I'm going to defy the good nuns of Notre Dame de Sion. And I'm going to ask you about your trademarked brand, Girl Boner. Where did that come from? Uh, thank you. And thank you for uh, being vulnerable enough because I know that it can be a little bit embarrassing for some people to, to say or to talk about. And it is such a passion of mine. What happened was I had that awakening where I realized I was not sexually empowered. And that journey helped me so much. I, it was contagious for me. It was something that I wanted to spread around and, and uh, really do good with. And I didn't know for a long time what, what exactly I would do. But it came to me one day, there was this phrase, girl boner, that had been kind of an inside joke with me forever since I was in sex ed in elementary school. I was in, I believe, fourth grade. 
And we had that like one class where we're going to learn everything about sex that everyone, all the kids are fidgeting around and nervous and snickering. And I was so curious. And I remember the teacher shared, you know, an anatomical drawing, a medical drawing of a man with an erection and talked about pleasure for men. And then when we got to women, it was about cramps and pads and tampons. (laughs) And I left that class thinking, my life is over. Like what, what good is something good has to come. So in my mind, even though I knew that I couldn't ask anyone about this because of the culture I was in, it just was so taboo. I had that question. And when I learned what a boner was, I immediately wondered what about girl boners? So it was like a joke for me for a long time. And then I had this sort of epiphany after I had started writing already and decided that I wanted to really do something in sexual empowerment. So I trademarked the term to launch it on my blog. And I realized that once you start the conversations, there are a lot of people who, who want to join in. Oh, I think so. I think especially people who have been told to be quiet on a, a, a certain subject, which I think is certainly more my generation than say my daughter's generation. But, um, it's, it's still, you know, there's the good girl. We're all supposed to be good girls. Can you be a good girl and a sexual woman? Exactly. And actually my tagline is where good girls go for sexual empowerment because it has bothered me for a long time that the word good and sex could not be in the same sentence. Like you couldn't be a good person as a, as a woman and have a healthy sex life or talk about sex or any of that. So, and actually one of the really common things that I hear when people hear about my work, I'll say, yeah, it's called girl boner. And they say, but you seem so nice. Like there's <laughs> Sort of, you know, you can't be nice and also, and, and it's been part of human nature and human bodies since the beginning of time. So it's, it's really interesting that it's still, there's still a lot of stigma. Oh, there is indeed. So help us out. Um, as a nice girl, give us some simple steps that, that we all can take. Um, people listening, probably women in particular, but you know, People, I mean, I think there are a lot of guys and the sweetest guys and the ones that more women would be attracted to because they are so incredibly sweet, but they just don't feel like they're the, you know, superhero type. So help all of us, men, women, how do we feel better? You mentioned something earlier that I thought was really important. You said how we feel about our, our diets. And food in general and nutrition can be very self-fulfilling. And the same thing is true about our sex lives and sexuality. So the first step I always recommend is kind of taking an inventory of your own thoughts and behaviors around sex and sexuality. When I had my first college class where I realized I had not talked about sex before, you know, I had had sex and never talked about it, even with the person that I had had it with. So I think it really takes looking at your life and seeing, you know, Are you embarrassed to talk about sex with your doctor? Are you embarrassed to talk about it with your partner? You know, if you have a health concern when you're going to the doctor, I noticed a lot of, especially women, are too ashamed to ask questions like, my sex drive's a little low, or, you know, things like that. That's important. So realizing what is influencing you. For a lot of women, and some men too, body image is a major barrier and you don't need to have this perfect, you know, I love my body. It's beautiful the way it is fully committed attitude to have great sex. And actually wonderful sex and sexual pleasure boosts confidence and helps us feel more beautiful and more alive and less stressed out. So really being honest with yourself is a big one. And then remembering that pleasure is a birthright. So many women learn, and guys learn this too, but we learn that guys are, again, they will seek sexual pleasure any chance they get, which is another stereotype and myth that, unfortunately, you mentioned sort of like the macho guy image that they feel like they have to be Superman in the bedroom. They don't. You know, we're all human beings. It's very individual, and it's totally okay if you don't want sex very often or if you want it very, very often or you're into kind of more kinky things or any of that. But you know, I think, so working on your body image can be a a big step as well. And just committing to something, going with small steps and realizing that this is a journey and a process. It's not like a light that you switch on, that you're suddenly sexually empowered, but, you know, be patient with yourself. 
Well, this may be the first time in this church station that somebody talked about kinky things. So, wahoo, listen to the vegan show. You don't know what you're going to learn. Hey, God created sex, right? <laughs> so how how about the, the vegan thing, people being all plant-based for their health? We know that's really good for the physical heart, and I think it's really good for the metaphorical heart with the kindness and the reverence for life. But we also talk about the heart in terms of love. Are healthy people better lovers? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that conscientiousness and compassion are some of the sexiest attributes of any person. And I hear that from a lot of women. I think that men are sometimes feel that that's a weakness. They've been taught that if they're really compassionate and sensitive, that somehow that's not manly. And it's one of the biggest turn-ons for a lot of women. And I do, I think it really applies to the bedroom because you're not just thinking about yourself. You have to think about your partner. And also a plant-based diet actually has physiological benefits for sexuality. There's actually a study done. uh, It was in chemical senses in 2006 that showed that Red meat consumption has a negative impact on perceived body odor and physical attractiveness in the bedroom, whereas people who do not eat meat tend to have a better taste and flavor and smell. So there's all kinds of benefits. And I think, you know, from an inflammation standpoint as well, as you mentioned, the healthy foods, anything that's moving blood through your body and helping you circulate better will help your whole body work better. And that's what you need for physical arousal is is circulation. And how about people who are very, very dedicated to a cause, uh, the cause of animal rights or some other good cause? I think it's really hard for people like this to be able to take off and do anything with wild abandon, whether it's have sex or go skiing or whatever it is. Do you have any suggestions for people who are absolutely committed to saving the world to sometimes turn it off and just allow themselves a great good time? Oh, I love that question. And no one's ever asked it. It's so important. I see sexuality and sexual pleasure, unless you're asexual, it is self-care and it is absolutely worth treasuring and cherishing. And I relate to that, even though my work is in the sexuality field, I get really, really passionate about the work and we can get so busy that we don't make time for it. So I think that for a lot of people, individuals and couples, scheduling sexy time is great. And it doesn't have to be specifically for sex. It can be for physical intimacy with a person where maybe as part of your, you know, cause, you're also carving out time to have a really romantic vegan dinner by candlelight and doing massages with organic oils or something like that, or taking baths and just knowing that the more that we take care of ourselves, the cliche is true. The more we can help other people. So see it as fuel for yourself and whatever you can commit to. If right now it's kind of completely off your plate, maybe it's, you know, scheduling an intimacy time session once a month, even, I think that can be really powerful. I think so many people say, oh, my gosh, my whole life is scheduled. I've got to schedule that, too. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You know, and and I'm not a, you know, I don't really love scheduling in general. But one thing that's cool about scheduling intimate time is that it instantly puts in this anticipation, which is one of the biggest turn-ons that there is. So it's like a big, beautiful meal. If you know that at the end of the day, you're going to have the most amazing vegan gourmet cuisine, like those beautiful pictures you post on Instagram that I adore, <laughs> that I drool over. If, if you know that's coming, you are going to be hungry for it all day long. Whereas if you sort of just like at the last minute go, oh, I'm just going to buy a frozen meal on the way home. Eh, it's not as exciting. So it actually can be a lot of fun. And I recommend that people just give it a try. You know, you don't really know until you give it a go. Well, I know that anticipating Christmas makes it all that much better. So why not? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I was interested that you said you had sex ed in fourth grade. Now, maybe because you're in California and I was in Missouri, but... We didn't have anything ever, and the only reason that I got any sex ed at all was that I was an animal rights person, even back then. And so I was in biology class, which was college prep, and all the smart kids were supposed to take it, and I was not going to 
do dissection. I just absolutely would not. And so the only class that I could transfer into was called human science. And so the teacher is, you know, filling out the form and everything. And he said, you know, this is not college prep. And I'm thinking, oh, this is awful. And I had these terrible visions of how I was going to wind up this completely uneducated, poverty-stricken old woman begging in a trailway station. But I couldn't do dissection, and I was going to stick to my guns. And so I got to go to human science class, and it just happened to be the day that they were doing the sex lecture. And I remember thinking, heck with college prep. Yay for animal rights. This is good. So (laughs) so what about education? Maybe we just don't have enough education and pleasure all the way around. You know, we have to give ourselves permission to go to a movie. Do we need more of that taught when we're young? Absolutely we do. And actually, I grew up in Minnesota, so Ah. it's pretty pretty common for people now, kids, to have like one class in maybe fourth or fifth grade, around the time they've moved it earlier, not because of pleasure, but because girls are menstruating earlier. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of it. And then maybe they'll get like one trimester in high school. We need sex ed from kindergarten up and age appropriate. Obviously, you're not going to get into all the specifics when somebody's five years old, but kids are curious about it when they're really tiny. And so often when they ask questions, they're told to just be quiet instead of saying, you know, this is something we can talk about at home. You know, obviously it's not something you want to be talking about at the mall in front of a lot of people, but it's perfectly okay for them to have questions about their bodies. And I do think that you're right about pleasure in general. We, d- we definitely have this sort of, uh, I think, who, who called it this? Uh, I think Adriana Huffington called it uh, the glorification of busy, where if we just are busy all the time and don't sleep and try not to eat enough, <laughs> you know, we're just like too over the top obsessive, then we're somehow successful. And that's just not true. That is so culturally accurate. I mean, if you call somebody and say, what are you doing? And they say, well, I just ran five miles and I cleaned the entire house before 6 a.m. And now I'm going to go in and work a 14-hour day and come home and make a gourmet meal for my husband, which, of course, I'll just watch him eat because I have to be in the bedroom putting on Victoria's Secret. And we're like, oh, wow, (laughs) I'm not even going to tell her what I'm doing because I pale by comparison. Exactly, exactly. Imagine calling someone and, oh, I've been sitting in nature. You know, it's, I think it's, it does need to, to shift. And certainly it's great to be accomplished and to be out there doing a lot of great stuff. But one thing I've learned in the past few years is the power of stillness. And I think we talked a little bit about meditation when you were on my show. And I just think it's, it is so powerful, even if it's just a few minutes a day, especially in this world where we are constantly stimulated by, you know, being online and on your phone and just go, go, go. And we really need to take that time to slow down. So talk a little bit, I know this is another one of your specialties, August, about self-acceptance and body image. I know we've talked about body size. That gets talked about quite a bit, although it's certainly a problem. I, I don't know very many women who are thrilled about their size and shape, at least not in swimming suit season. but. You know, as I get older, I see this incredible ageism in our culture. I mean, I I think that people walk down the street and you see a very elderly couple holding hands and you just think, okay, that's very nice, but I hope they're not intimate at their late age. That's just, I just can't even go there. I mean, we have all these ideas. So when you're the subject of you're the wrong size, you're the wrong age, there's something wrong with you from the outside. How do you from the inside say, you know what, there is a whole lot right about me? Really, really excellent question. And it's very sad. Our whole culture is programmed from a very young age to see especially girls and women as, you know, having to look a particular way to be considered beautiful, which then is how they're considered valuable. And it's really sad. And I think it's hard to change, but it is very changeable. And I think that people need to know that they can change. And one of the fears is that it's similar to eating disorder recovery. People are so afraid of recovering because they think that somehow they will, if they have acceptance, then they will become, quote, ugly, quote, fat, quote, all these 
adjectives that they associate with failure. And you have to know that the rewards are so immense and that you don't even know what beauty there is for you. You'll have all this energy to go out and do something meaningful with your life and to live with passion and curiosity. And it's such a beautiful thing. And it really starts, I think, with kind of, I call it detoxifying your life, where you look at your whole entire life, The people, even take your calendar. You mentioned scheduling. Look at all the people that you see, the places that you go. How do those places and people and the different types of media and different magazines, how do they make you feel? Are they telling you that you're less than? If they are, recycle that magazine. I did a whole cleanse of my life uh, during my recovery, and it was really the beginning of not having that negative self-talk going all the time. And it's amazing what happens. The, the mental space you free up when you're not letting the world tell you who you are, because we can't change the whole world, but we can change our environment and we can tell ourselves even lies at first to stay because we can rationally know I am a beautiful person the way I am. I don't need to change and to feel it is different. But the more that we practice like affirmations and making our own private space, a healthy, a place where your best friend, your daughters, your friends would all flourish instead of seeing yourself as somebody who deserves punishment. That's really the beginning. That's lovely. Talk for a few minutes about writing. I know you've written a novel and now you've, you've written Embraceable, Empowering Facts and True Stories about Women's Sexuality. You're a writer at a very difficult time in history to be a writer. How's that going? Oh, thank you. I, I love writing and it's, it's going really well. I'm lucky that I was raised to see whatever my heart's desire as valuable. So I wasn't taught, you know, the arts are not a real job and all that. I've actually never had a real job. I quit one non-job for another non-job and I've always been able to make it work. And I think again, that's partly self-fulfilling where if we believe we can make money and we hustle and we figure it out, we will figure it out. So I, what I did was when I had this realization that I wanted to write full time, I was acting and I had written a short film and it was optioned for production, which is amazing. But when the producers took it over, I was kind of heartbroken and I realized shortly after that I missed the writing. So I was a hundred percent fully dove in, which is just my personality. And at first, of course, I wasn't making any money, but what I did was I created my own free opportunities at the time. I hadn't started blogging yet, but I would, I started a column for a nutrition column for a local magazine for free. And then I had clips to send in and I built a, it took time, but gradually I built a health writing platform, which then became health and sexuality. So I write for a bunch of different publications and I love switching from one style to another, whether it's novels or nonfiction books or my blog, it's like going to the gym and working out different, different parts of your body. It kind of, you never get stuck in one place and I feel like it keeps me fresh. So I'm really fortunate for that. And I think I think it's a wonderful time to be a writer too, because there's so many opportunities and we just have to decide what we want to create for ourselves. That is lovely. I've never thought about a personal trainer for writers, but you sound like you would be a perfect one. Down to the wire here with my very last question for you, August McLaughlin. The book is embraceable. The website is augustmclaughlin.com, and that's M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-M. I love how laugh is right in the middle of your surname, and all this will be on the show notes. But you've mentioned a few times a wonderful romantic vegan dinner. So just describe for us a wonderful romantic vegan dinner. Oh, wow. The first thing that popped to mind is what I will share, and it's outdoors with a beautiful view and a soft breeze. And my mom would make a vegan curry. She's the most incredible chef when it comes to Indian food. She grew up there. And uh, it would be all about not only savoring the flavors and the, the wonderful curry spices, and uh, we make wonderful roti, like the naan bread and fresh mango. And it would be by by candlelight or by like sunset or sunrise. The atmosphere is always just as important to me. And it would be, of course, with, with my husband. It sounds absolutely beautiful. And maybe we can all kind of clone it with the cuisines of our choice and the perfect person of our choice. August McLaughlin, you are so lovely. Thank you so much for being in the world. 
for being on the show, for taking the time to share your expertise today with the listeners of Main Street Vegan. And all you listeners, I would like to just plant the seed for what's going to be happening here next week. It is also something brand new that we've never done before. We have talked a lot about food and all different kinds of food. Next week, we're going to talk about not food. We're going to talk about fasting. Now, we've talked about juicing, but we've never talked about fasting, which has been called nature's operating table. The idea that for healing in nature, animals stop eating until they get well. A lot of research was done on this in the 1970s, both in this country, in Europe, and and in the former Soviet Union. And the whole concept is something that a lot of people are not familiar with, and it's utterly fascinating. So what we're going to be doing next week is our first guest will be Isosa E. You may remember Isosa, Raw Girl, Toxic World. She was on before talking about her career as an actor, her book about overcoming acne, But she also does fasting for spiritual reasons. She's a very committed Christian, and the fasting comes into her life in that way. Then we're going to be bringing on Dr. Frank Sabatino, who's actually, he was on early, early in the show, maybe 2012, if you check that out. And Dr. Sabatino is opening a brand new, wonderful fasting and healing clinic in South Florida. So he was on some time ago, and I've had more wonderful comments about the interview with him than I think any other interview ever done. And so he'll be on next week to talk about physiologically, what is the fasting state? What happens? And does it need to be something that we should all be informed about for taking care of our own health? Fascinating, don't you think? Thanks to Unity Online Radio for being our very gracious host. Thanks to Jeff Comfort, our engineer, for making everything work right. And thanks to you for being treasured, treasured listeners. Until next time, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. think of peace, we may imagine ourselves sitting high on a mountaintop at daybreak or walking on a secluded beach while the sun sets. But peace isn't a luxury reserved only for special occasions or special places. It's an essential tool for daily living. My peace isn't dependent upon a particular place or event. At any time and in any circumstance, I can shift my focus from the appearances of life to the reality of peace within myself. Park Cousins said, How things look on the outside of us depends on how things are on the inside of us. So if you don't like what you're seeing around you, paint a different picture within you. Peace. What I see is what I get. Peace can begin with me. 
To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. Spirit of Recovery is the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth. Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., interviews down-to-earth guests who share with you how they keep going and growing in recovery. Spirit of Recovery is the place to get practical tips and join in lively discussions on topics that matter to recovering people. This program welcomes everyone who wants to know more about recovery. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time on Spirit of Recovery, where we talk about what keeps you growing. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. <laughs> 